Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. That fellas, we are live. Yeah, buddy. What's up, amigos? It is the 100th episode of Value After Hours. It's, a pro- it's, it's two years. We, Thanksgiving 2019 was the first drop when we were recording them. Now we do them live. Madness. Uh, Michael, What's happening, fellas? <laughs> Value, like. value investors glasses it's all about recycling guys this is an esg pair of mike's, mike's incognito yeah <laughs> uh what's up guys thanks for having me on yeah it's been well, a while since we saw sitting. each other i know it's happy 100 my god 100 episodes how do you guys do it 100 times that's insane not, not well <laughs> i don't know how people listen all the time that's the shocking part so we got some we got some nice uh nice uh shout outs from everybody melbourne india abu dhabi what's up <laughs> i think townsville's usually in the house too like i think i give town townsville's uh like a, a hundred thousand people in australia in queensland yeah, so yep. like most most of the watch value after us two town. of them are always listening i like it chapel hill what's up so uh, I'm uh, we're, we're not I'm not clear that this is the case, but I'm going to tell that story. Anyway, I think that we're uh, I think we've got the value growth reversal, fellas. Who's with me? One one, one year in, ride or die. It does it's seem about like time, Toby. Bundaberg, Bundy in the house, Gold Coast. Hey, Aussies, what's up? Sweden, Netherlands, um, Townsville. I wouldn't mind a reversal because I'm about three months into every day that I log in, just seeing a slow grind lower in the account, which is fun. It's, right. it's like it's like constantly getting flicked in the balls. Not really one big <laughs> kick in the nuts, but just uh, just a little flick. I'm the, I'm the same, but it's been six months, Bill. So just you got three months in front of you. So enjoy the ride, buddy. It's a good time. Turns out we have some overlap. Turns out. Yeah, I had I had that from uh, the beginning of 2018 <laughs> to about September 2019, maybe February 20, 2020. Oh, sorry. No, September 2020. What am I talking about? Yeah. You were, you were coming when, when we did our podcast together a year ago, Toby, you were just coming sort of at the, you didn't know, but you were just coming sort of at the end of that. So you had kind of, you had taken your pain. Mate, I was at the bottom of a very deep well, staring up at a (laughs) tiny dot of light, trying to hold true to the faith. It puts the lotion on the skin, Toby. It puts the lotion (laughs) on the skin. (laughs) I'm so desperate. I'm contemplating sobriety. Oh no! Don't, oh, don't do, do it. That's the wrong time for that, Bill. <laughs> I thought you were going the other direction. No, I've so, lived that for too long. I, uh, I, um, I don't really have a topic other than the fact that um, I saw Ryan Cohen, who's at Alpha Architect, had a note today that said that um, even though value has had a pretty good twelve months. Uh, the the spread is still as wide as it's ever been. 
on an on a EBIT TV basis, which is the acquirer's multiple. So I'm also pretty excited about that. So I have a, I have a question to spring on you, gentlemen, on the hundredth episode. As you guys think back, it's a, it's a it's a lot of episodes. Does anything jump out as your favorite episode over the last uh, however many weeks? I mean, you've been doing this almost two years now, I would guess. So is there a favorite amongst the hundred between the three of you? I'd say episode other, other four. Than- <laughs> <laughs> oh, what happened then? Well, we made it longer than I anticipated. Uh, it's been playing with house money since then. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. The first live one was pretty fun. I got to say the first yeah, one that we fun. dropped, the first one I, cause we recorded them initially and then I dropped one. The first one got dropped on Thanksgiving just cause I was like, let's, let's just see what happens if everybody's at home. And it went, actually bananas it went like was much bigger than any other one that we had done to that point uh, that i had done to that point and then i thought this this might work and then when we went live that was also really fun that was another one that sort of stood out and so we've been live since um march 2020 did you guys realize that like we the first live one was basically the bottom yeah not that i'm not saying that we we caused the market to recover but i'm not we're not not saying saying you all have to thank us but we're we're also not saying that that you don't you did most people people think it was bill crying on cnbc it wasn't that was not it it was the (laughs) (laughs) people have it wrong different bill crying (laughs) i maintain that if you listen to his whole interview he was saying that he was unwinding the hedges and buying but i digress yep to be fair Uh, bill Bill cries a little bit bill cried at the target target general meeting when he got voted down to yeah and uh and and it's emotional the big herbalife short pitch right there was a there were definitely tears when it was the grandfather russian immigrant story there's you know sad story i'm about to cry over curate (laughs) never heard of it what's that i uh i met ted weschler last week he's a swell man oh that's a very good story uh i was invited to the liberty dinner thanks to mike mitchell on uh on wednesday evening it was pretty awesome very cool room met bill nigren very nice guy mm, very uh nice. it was Look cool at you rubbing shoulders yeah, it was cool royalty i was saying i met bill cool. brister are, no, are they you? definitely were not saying that they were like who is this guy were you wearing those glasses that would have helped <laughs> no i was not um but it was fun can and you, uh you- what? Can you share what you can you share what you asked Ted? Yeah, I was just like, how to how do you how do you see Dillard's? And uh, his his short answer was study something for twenty years, study another thing for fifteen years, put some pieces together, and you can make a lot of money. It's easy. It's really easy. Boom. Yeah. NFT so. right there. Boom. <laughs> That's right. That's how you got to get interested in crypto. What did he study now, for twenty years? I think that's true. He just, he, he, uh, you know, he followed, well, he followed Dillard's forever. And then like, what was the 15 year one then? Uh, I don't know that I'm at Liberty to say until he wants to tell the story. Okay. uh, Fair enough. But it was, it was another company that was, that said something, uh, that he kind of like had something go off in his mind. Mm. He was like, Dillard's is the beneficiary. Not going to make it. Not going to make it. Yeah, definitely not going to make it. Put, (laughs) put stuff together like that in your head. Just, uh, not going to make it. Too long. It takes too long. I don't know that he I, like. I, he didn't see. I don't think he saw like some big buyback story, and then uh, I, I don't think that's what he was looking for. Uh, it was. I it was more of a real estate idea. Okay. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. That I don't know if I'd ever told you this, Bill. But that's the my whole summer internship with Michael Price at MFP. 
the only thing he wanted me to do was analyze every bit of real estate Dillard's owned and then research the Dillard's family. So hmm. you'd, you'd think that that was 2003. You'd, you'd think I would have caught that trade too, but <laughs> 17 years meant you were three years too early. Yeah, it was, not, enough. Was, not enough time. Not enough time. 18 I years, did, just needed a couple yeah. more years. Two more Don't years and it would have been yours. <laughs> to be fair though you could have said the same thing about sears right because oh yeah there was that huge reset there was a 150 page research report on every bit of property that sears owned and uh i, I sold some puts in it that, that yep. were like just a monster yield that expired worthless and then of course the whole thing went to went through the floor so it doesn't always work there was an article on it, it maybe it was a new yorker or the atlantic or esquire it was something or fortune about how um, Ed Lampert, when he took over, that he was he became so um, focused on the minutia and like the micro details of SHLD that to the point where he would like create fake accounts for the internal office message boards and like post questions to people and like talk about himself in the third person. And like, he was so down in the weeds with like give people iPads and then take iPads away. It's a fascinating read. And you'd think it was crazy, but I can tell you it's definitely not. I didn't see it at, C- at Sears, but I've seen it on the inside of companies. I've seen it happen before where guys come in from the outside investors and just go absolutely crazy. And I, like when I read that, I owned uh, SHLD at the time that came out. And I was like, well, I'm gone. So that's, a good, that's all I needed. That's it. That's the signal. See ya. And he did it all from his yacht. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably true. He's in Yeah, Florida. he, He's he like, wouldn't leave yachts. the boat or whatever. Oh man! Then again, I've never been kidnapped, so I don't know. Do you think my boat? Either. Do you think that was what the play was? That was the play to turn around the business. I guess it was. He sort of he paid for the business, but at some point that became like a capital structure real estate play, didn't it? And it was like well before it was through the floor. They invested in Shop Your Way. That was a shitty product. It was an yeah. app. They merged the the initial story was that they were getting I believe it was Kmart out of bankruptcy and then he merged it with Sears for scale and there was a I mean I'm digging deep this was a long time ago and that they were uh, there was a real estate component that gave you some downside protection the problem was they were early downside protection to zero I like that <laughs> well he's still got the debt right so he's not it's, oh that's fair it's yeah. the it's the yeah. it's all everybody in the sidecar with him who's in who lost the money game's not over either though we're st- yeah. still in bankruptcy yeah. proceedings you can so. probably buy the queue game's over for most the people the still game is over probably the shield queue hasn't had that big jake big sears run. is like the girl that gives you herpes over and over again and you're like no this time she's not gonna do it no she is but it could work for ah, us sorry ladies i yeah. i don't i'm sorry it can be the guy <laughs> it's not i'm not trying to... oh bill oh bill i'm just yeah, saying that, that was messy she's those, gonna those, cheat again or he those, will you can't trust it those those locations you don't think have any value but they're going to become server farms you just give it a couple of years and they're going to become aws server estate. farms yeah. that is good real estate because yeah. you can't I lose always them wondered why in. that would have been to me what seemed like the smart thing to do was to sell all that as become distribution centers for amazon and get that last mile like they have wow they're, they're like they're within i don't know whatever like yeah. 90% of the us population within yeah. i don't know 10 miles or something insane like that yeah. To be fair, I think Saratage is turning out okay, isn't it? Is it, it ran for a little while. I don't know. I think Buffett had a chunk of that was a, okay. It popped up in everybody's portfolio about five or six years ago <laughs> when Buffett bought some. Yeah, that's yeah, right. he, he, yeah. He bought it. Per, he bought it personally. Yeah. Turns out Saratage is not doing okay. 
<laughs> and it's gone. And yeah. it's gone. Yeah. The the five year chart is done. <sighs> well, oh That's well. Fine. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Anyway, yeah, it was it was a it was a fun fun weekend. We met a lot of uh, people, and so it was good. I, I, the new CEO of Curate of QVC, uh, David Rawlinson, is like a heck of a nice guy. We'll we'll see if he's a good CEO. I, I really hope he is. Cause I have a lot of money invested in it, but. Uh, God, he is like the nicest guy in the world. I was just like, ah, David, you're just great. Like I'd have you speak at my wedding. Like you're the nicest, like just well-spoken, thoughtful, nice guy. It was fun having dinner with him too. I enjoyed that quite a bit. And we, yeah. we had dinner with a, with a Peloton bear. The guy who's been bearish on Peloton when it was mooning. Yeah. Uh, where, yeah you remember Simeon. where did he work, Bill? Bank Simeon. of America. Yeah. Is it Bank of America? Yeah. I thought he was somewhere else. Like a sharp guy. Really sharp Oh, guy. my bad. BMO. My bad. BMO. Sorry. Sorry. It was BMO. BMO. Yeah, he made the, he made the case that uh, that Peloton, the worst thing that ever happened to Peloton was COVID, and I actually thought that that was a, a very good take. Like in, when I digested it the next day, I was like, I bet you're right about that. that Why do you that say were, that? So yeah. his, his his whole thesis was that Peloton was new and different, and they were building a, it. wasn't the bike; it was the culture that they were trying to build. And what you would want is just slow and steady growth. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. And he thinks with COVID, it just, it was like a huge steroid injection into their, not, not just their business, but also mm-hmm. into their, it stretched everybody so thin. And then they started thinking that this was like the new normal and they didn't treat it internally as kind of a one-off. They, they gave the expectation that like, Hey, this is, this is it. We, we've arrived. This is what we do. Yeah. yeah. And they bought and pre-core. It, yeah. And that he, he was basically like, if you took COVID out of it, he's like that, that, uh, the, it, the business would be in much better shape today, but. Look, that's a pretty good, shit, pretty good take. Different. You know, another, take anyway. another COVID stock that reported recently uh, that looks like it's doing really well is Zoom. You see, they're up seventy-two percent revs year on year. Like fantastic year. They're like three hundred forty million dollars in revs. Incredible stock price. Uh, nasty. I was going to say somebody. Somebody update. was just talking to me today about this. Give stock us an prices. update, Bill. <laughs> Curious how that worked out. Curate is winning. That said, look, I anyone that has there. heard me talk about Curate and owns it. Uh, don't come here, first of all, know what you own, but I would not be shocked if Curate has a six handle or a five or a four at this point. Like, I don't know why it stops. So 600 or no, no, no. <laughs> like, I, th- I think, I think it could be like a $6 stock. Like getting some capital back through that, aren't you? Yeah. Well, that's the whole, I mean, that's the whole thing. I don't think the dividends are going to stop. So that's why I still own it. But if I was like, if my job depended on short-term moves, I would not be owning that. Stock Too hard. Yeah. We, we got, uh, we got, we paid 10 bucks last year, Toby, and we've gotten seven and a quarter back uh, in, in 12 months. Not terrible. Is that good? I like that sort of de-risking. Not terrible. That'll work. Yeah, we got a, uh, we, we got a special guest knocking on the door. Uh-oh. Who is that? For, uh, I've admitted him. I think there he is. Oh, He's, oh, oh shit! No. It's Ian oh, Castle. No. Oh no! Ian Castle's got to come in. He's got to come, without warming up. <laughs> He's muted out of the bullpen right away. <laughs> Bang! What's up? There we go. Look at him looking good. <laughs> uh, How are you guys doing? How are you, Ian? Doing great. Are you guys Mike, know. you hanging or are you leaving? What are you no, doing? No, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give in. I, there's no way. I'm so happy you guys put me on first because it's like the, I'm like the warm up. It's the worst. There's no way I'm hanging out. <laughs> now that Ian's on, I'm like, I'm all right. We're like, bringing hey. in the righty. All right, one more time. All right, <laughs> happy hundred, guys. Happy hundred. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Thanks Mike. See you, Mike. Bye. Ian Castleman, you had a very good tweet the other day about this air pocket that microcaps hit. I thought that was yeah. very interesting. 
Yeah, it's it's something I think we see every year, but I think this year it's been more pronounced. I mean, I think every time kind of between this period when when companies report Q3 earnings and the end of the year, you have obviously people selling for tax reasons, whether that's tax loss or tax gain. Uh, but I think also, especially in microcap, where I would say in general, the average investors shorter term, even shorter term focus than even the larger cap companies, you know, they people just don't want to wait four months to get the next data point, you know, and mm. so especially if they especially if they know what the next data point likely is, uh, whether it's mediocre or even good, you know, why wait four months to to see a result that, you know, is coming, you know, they'd rather just sell it here and even buy it back higher later. It's and it's kind of counterintuitive, obviously, to what people should do. And that's why it's a really good opportunistic time to look at companies is, you know, if you have more than a six month time frame, you know, now's a good time to be to be looking at some of these companies that have been kind of taken out to the woodshed. And you can see it. I mean, really, ever since November 15th, which is the deadline for companies to report Q3 results. I mean, the iShares, you know, microcap ETF is like straight down. Huh. That's yeah, interesting. It's, it's pretty it's pretty pronounced. What if I personally it, am in the fetal position and have no confidence? <laughs> is microcap where I should go to? <laughs> I don't know about that, but it's okay. It's fun. It's funny though. I mean, like when you think about it, it's it's excruciating for people to know that they could be sitting on dead money. It's like they yeah. would rather just have the money on the sidelines and just even buy it back higher after a Q4 result. You know, because then going into when you get Q4 results into Q1, it's an abbreviated time period. It's like, you know, two months, you only have to wait a couple months or 45 days. It's kind of the opposite effect where you have a hmm. lot of activity. There's a couple of data points, bang, bang, and people get really involved at that point in time. Interesting. So it's the lack yeah. of liquidity means they get, they trade down pretty heavily through, through Q4, but that's great. If you're a, if you know that that's going on, you can uh, go through and hoover them up. Is that, is that part of what you do? Yeah, I mean, it, it honestly is. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm not, you know, I, I'm still susceptible to it as well. You know, my portfolio has things that are down me over the last two weeks, you know, a lot, you know, as well. But, you know, I have a longer time frame than a lot of people. But I, I do it's find more it, like it, eight months, right. not six months. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> six months in one day, you know, something around there. But, <laughs> but, I, but it is a great time, you know, because there's always a tax reason to sell something, you know, and then this on top of it, impatience. But um, yeah, how are, so, how are you guys doing? How, how do you feel about how do you feel about uh, so? What, would you are you kind of growthy, small and micro? Is that is that fair to characterize you that way? Do you think? Yeah, I think it is. I think that's that's fair. You know, I'm primarily looking for kind of unique businesses that can sustain 20, 30, 50 percent organic growth rates that uh, you know, aren't selling me to products on another you know, the thousandth company trying to market the same type of product or service a little bit differently, trying to gain share, but some, you know, a company that truly has a unique product you know, or service so that um, you know, I really just tried to, it's kind of, two, kind of two things I try to play off of. Number one is tailwinds, you know, trying to invest in an area that has a tailwind with it. And then number two, down to the company level, scarcity. I'm a big fan of scarcity of all forms. You know, trying to find those scarce businesses where there's not another one like it. You know, and specifically, it's great when you can find one where there's not another company like it, but there's very few other public ways to buy a company like that. You know, so where you where you have this tailwind where it's only focused on a couple of ideas that's ripe for price appreciation. You know, and that's primarily what I'm trying to find when I try to buy things. Hopefully, at an undervalued valuation that can get overvalued. And that's what I mean by that. Right. 
Do, do you feel like the have you have you been tagged in this little growth sell off? Has that has that impacted you? Or are you sort of that you that they sort of trade idiosyncratically? No, I mean I think I mean I've I've been tagged in a few of them. You know, here recently we have a few kind of growthier positions that you know are larger. I would say larger micro cap. You know, that have been tagged in that as well. Um, in fact, I was just looking at it, you know, I think end of October, between end of October and today, you know, it's been, you know, there's a few that are down, you know, 20, 30% just in, you know, three weeks, you know, so, you know, I, I'm feeling it as well, but, um, and I see it, you know, opportunistically. Turning point was off like 30% in a quarter. That was like, they reported and they dropped 20, 30%. That was fun. I was like, okay, cool. That's, that's fun. Let's get it. This is that kind of market where stuff reports and it's just down 20%. Yeah, it's wild. Zoom was down like eighteen or twenty yesterday, I think, or is that today? And I've I've seen that with a few things reporting, even even Best Buy, which is more value than growth, has been. I had a had a big tumble. On the other hand, like Roblox is up seventy percent last month. I kind of wonder if we're seeing some of Mike Green's thesis play out. What's that? I just I, it just doesn't feel like there's a ton of active liquidity in certain places. And then, and then it feels like there's a lot of um, there's just a lot of momentum out there, man. I don't know what it is. Relentless uh, maybe it's always index. been that way. Maybe I'm just waking up to it. I'm not sure, but um, things are moving hard right now. That, that, that chart that Charlie Bolello circulated that had all of the Jake just sent it through before. And I, Jake sent it through, and it, it was like it came out on the 19th, and like the numbers are all completely different since it came out because they're. Worse. There's been such a sell off. Oh, the growth, yeah, the growth ones. Showing some of those names down, like I forget exactly, but they're like down 70, 80%, some of those names. And even in the last four days, those numbers would be worse than that. This is why I haven't been answering the inning question for a while. I'm telling you, we stayed too long. We're all fucking hungover. <laughs> it's no longer an inning. This is extra innings. People have gone home. I mean, you, you definitely see those kind of negative undercurrents. I mean, I think there was another article out earlier last week that. Trying to remember who who put it out, but it, it something to the effect of there was there was more fifty two was it more fifty two week lows at least at a point in time last week than there was during COVID. No kidding. Mm. Yeah, something like that. Like so, the, like the, there's this undercurrent that's pretty bad, you know, outside of the largest companies, you know, or the, you know. Yeah, the breadth is is troubling. Yeah. It's been shit for a while. It, I mean, there's this has been going on. I think it's continuing and maybe some of the bigger names are getting headlines, but the under there's, I said, I don't know. I tweeted a while ago. It's a bear market. People just don't know it yet. It's like the top five uh, names in the index are okay, but everything else is, uh, everything else is getting beaten up. But to be fair, I think value has been okay too. I think value sort of snuck through. Value didn't participate on the upside and then didn't participate on the downside either. It's yeah. It's like possible. As boring as it could possibly be. Yeah. It's been interesting. I was talking to somebody and uh, he, he said that um, his buddies at a fund and pitched, a, pitched an idea and the PM said, can you guarantee me it won't go down 30%? And he yes. was like, I, he goes, I cannot. And the guy goes, well, then we can't own it because there are certain names that if we buy it and they go down, we get fired. So we're just not doing it. I couldn't guarantee that anything would, wouldn't go down 30%. I think Berkshire. that's just going on though. Sometimes, or like right now, I think I think people are. I people think a lot scared. of places are afraid of getting fired for owning the wrong stuff right now. You going into twelve thirty one? 
not a lot of time to recoup if something goes wrong. Got your kids have to go to school next year. I don't know. Mm. Therein lies the opportunity. Potentially. You know, one of the things I was, I was journaling about, you know, I was thinking about coming on today. Um, I journal every once in a while. And then usually what happens is I try to boil down what I'm thinking or journaling down into a tweet. And that's what you see online. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of the things I was thinking about or journaling about over the last two or three weeks is just, you know, related to microcap, you know, how unlike probably any other area in public market investing, you know, the, the discovery of a company is probably the most pronounced. The importance of finding a company early mm. is most pronounced because, you know, one or two investors find an idea before you can literally, you know, move mm -hmm. that stock 10, 20, 50, hundred percent, you know, and so kind of that discovery really does matter a lot more down here in the small stuff than it does, you know, in small micro and mid and large cap. Um, and so, you know, it's important to be decisive, you know, speed matters. You know, I'm a big fan of kind of quick nose when it comes to investing. I think most people in here would agree with that, you know, big fan of a quick no, but I'm also a fan of a quick yes. Um, and I think the best buys are kind of always, at least for me, have been ones that were quick yeses. And, uh, you know, the ones that kind of check mark all those big boxes that you look for, you know, a type of company, a management team situation, and maybe the business connects with, with what you're going through or what you like, you know, as well, for whatever reason. Does that mean um, and, that you, you fill up a, a full position size relatively quickly then as well? No, no, not, not at all. You know, it's just that I'm, mm. we, we, we actually had one of these situations recently about three weeks ago, you know, we were looking at it and, you know, a certain event triggered us to look at the idea. We started looking at it on a Thursday. We dove into it hard Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, and bought a position, a smaller position on Monday. And, you know, we continue doing our diligence and, you know, as you continue to dive in, you know, you add to it, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the interesting thing when you think about it is, you know, all your, the companies that you like the most are the ones that you like more, the more you dig into them. And those are the rare ones. Cause quite honestly, if we're all being honest with ourselves, the more you dig into most things, the less you like them, you know? And so, you know, so usually it looks like me acting quickly to take on initial position to kind of check marks those, kind of first 10 big boxes that I have, and there might be 20 other boxes that need checked along the way. But as long as I can get to those first 10 being checked, you know, it's reason enough to, to take on a position, you know, you, and actually when I go back and read some of my journals from what I was purchasing in the past, and this kind of goes back to, to what you're working on with journalistic, uh, Jake, you know, is kind of going back to those previous decisions you made, kind of looking at what things you check there and how did they perform, whether you bought them or you didn't buy them. And when they check mark the big things, at least for me, when I look back, you know, I probably had a 70% batting average, you know, and so that's enough for me to at least take, get my feet wet, you know, in a, in a position. Um, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense, especially in microcap where discovery is important to in some ways, you know, shoot first, ask questions a little bit later Yeah. You know, when, when it does check those things, you know, I think it's, I think it also gets harder kind of the more institutionally minded you become to act quickly because, you know, it's obviously it's a lot more kind of cerebral to say you stuck to your process and did, you know, due diligence. Um, you know, you stuck to your 86 point checklist and talked to management suppliers, employees, you, you know, mm -hmm. went on top of a mountain and meditated for three weeks without your device, you know, before you became, you know, got to a buy decision. Like you know, room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's, it's, 
that sounds smarter, you know, but a lot of times when I look back at the past, it's those ones where I was able to get to a buy decision quick and, you know, really dove in and liked it more and more and continued to average into a position, whether that was average down or up. Um, you know, those are the ones that, um, you know, I think about, and we, you know, hopefully this will be one that we just took a position here recently, but that was kind of a real world example of one that we just kind of acted on quick. It'd be really interesting to see if your batting average improved as you got deeper into your checklist or whether that actually like added materially or not. Yeah. I mean, not everything, like we had two of these types of situations in the last 12 months where we kind of layered into a very small position and then layered back out of it, you know, because there was something that they either evolved in a way we didn't like, or, you know, something just, just happened. But, um, that's like the first, the first few, oh, sorry, I, I was just going to say the first few points are like why you want to own it. And then you spend the rest of them, like trying to kill the idea, right? That's the, so you, you, you always find the first five points. This is why I want to own it. And then the next, whatever it is, the 81 points after that are all the, the ways that you've been sunk in the past that you got to go through and try yeah. to kill it. Yeah. And that's what, that's what makes investing unique because those five or 10 points that are important to you and important to Jake or important to Bill, you know, might be different than, than me. And that's what makes investing so fun. You know, but I think there's there's some of those kind of quantitative type measures that check boxes, but there's also qualitative ones that are more personal. You know that um, that you you might find important, where you know I might not. You know, or vice versa. You just feel like you've donated enough money to a sector and don't want to make any more donations. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> enough charitable giving in uh, oil field drillers for me. It'd be fascinating yeah. to see like some kind of a that return weighted against a like a checklist dollar weighted return. So like I deployed this much capital at this amount of checklist items. And then I did, you know, another tranche of capital at a different number of checklists or even like, you know, batches of checklists and how those then correlated with the actual like outcome would be pretty cool. There's some things in there though that are like, existential or metaphysical risk like you really you're almost never going to see them even yeah. in your entire investing life it's just that when they when they come up it's just a donut let me put a big know. asterisk that the the end needs to be large enough to be significant there yeah. right because there will be tail <laughs> tail events that that are hard to predict it's it's really interesting because what what i just think about you know i've been doing this for 20 years but you know so much time is spent rationalizing into good ideas instead of great ones you know then it's funny when you see a great one come across the plate and you're like oh wow that's what a great one looks like you <laughs> <Now know>? I <laughs> <remember>. <laughs> yeah. that is very intelligent ian i like that that's the uh, that's the difference between buffett and everybody else that he just sits there waiting for the great ideas and he's just he's somehow he's figured out not to swing at the good ones you, you mispronounce munger sorry munger munger yeah fair <laughs> we got another we got another guest who's uh, knocking on the door that's oh. uh who could it be? <laughs> Jason Buck connecting to audio. What's Gentlemen, up? Congratulations. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, man. The big 100. So Jason got off a plane an hour ago and he's managed to get on. So many thanks. And I, I don't know what I'm doing here because I will be providing no value. But, uh, I, but and the I already looks, had mate. tech. Yeah, I already had technical difficulties because uh, Mike now owes me a keyboard because I was listening to the beginning of the, of the show. And when, when Bill brought up Curate and Mike goes, what's that? I spit my coffee all over my keyboard, literally. <laughs> I was trying to caffeine up for the show. 
end up spitting all over my keyboard. So I'm glad everything's functioning. So happy to be here. So what's, what's, uh, you're, you're, you're a vol maven. Uh, what's happening in, in the vol world? Are we, uh, is this, is this crash leaking over into the indexes or this sort of undercover crash? No, well, I feel like a maven wearing these glasses, you know, so yeah, I, I appreciate sure. that. What, what, how did you describe it before? Diva even, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it was like Ellen John meets Harry Potter. And I think Jake threw in a little, you know, Golden Girls, you know, Betty White. Yeah, it's <laughs> a little it's Dame Edna Everidge for the Aussies. There'll be exactly. about six people who get that one. Yeah, I was thinking about, uh, you know, for Vol Space, I was thinking about, you know, Bill was talking about the pain he's feeling. Um, you know, try being in Vol Land from April 2020 to now. That's 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 some serious pain being long Vol. Um, what we're seeing in general, yeah, like you're not getting, you know, these little head fakes are not big moves. Um, it's not really affecting, you know, you're not getting that spike in Vol. You know, as the VIX index is non-tradable. So you're what we really look at, you know, is like fixed strike volatility. So I'll, I'll try to explain it simply. Is like if at the money volatility, say, is like 10, and you buy a, a put that's 10% out of the money at like a 20 vol, and then you're at the money vol moves from 10 to 18, but you bought that put for 20, guess what? You're still down 10% on your put. So you're seeing a lot of like that skew and kind of buying of protection in the markets. And that's why until we see, you know, a big move and some of this gets washed out, probably, you know, that's kind of where we're at in the, in the vol space. Do you think that vol, that sort of uh, vol of vol, do you think that prevents big moves from happening because everybody's so hedged up? Like I've gone and had a look a few times at yeah. trying to hedge out, you know, looking at VIX, looking at HYG puts, looking at SPY puts, stuff like that. Everything was just stupid expensive. It's hard to make money in them. Yeah, I think that, you know, puts and vol is the same as value, right? It's, it's always what, what's the price you pay. And so, and then what it creates with, with everybody hedging is then there's inflection points. So you're bouncing off those inflection points and you're getting that mean reversion. So you're not getting paid out unless we get a big move. But if it breaks through that inflection point, then all hell breaks through, you know, loose and we have an air pocket there. So it's a little bit of both, right? You're having it. So it's keeping markets constrained and you're having mean reversion, especially, you know, as everybody has protection on as market makers are taking the other side of those trades, you know, we're having the constrained market. But if it hits that inflection point and goes from a two sigma to a five sigma event, there's nothing to stop it there. So that's, that's kind of what we're looking at. So when, yeah, after everybody wants insurance after the flood. So that's kind of what we've seen for the past like 18 months. Is this after, this is after the flood that you still regard this as after the flood? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even though you've had the vol crush from, you know, 80 down to sub 20, like I said, you still have high skew and everything. So everybody has that recency bias, right? And so you just need time to pass before everybody goes, man, I, I got to be just all in on this market. These hedges are, are dragging my portfolio. And so until they capitulate, you know, it's the, it's the Minsky like waves and effects, right? In 2019 going to 2020, Vol was like the cheapest it's ever been, you know, right when you needed that protection the most. So there's this nice inverse correlation that you tend to see over time. And, you know, like everything, we move in these, these long cycles. How about the like uh, call buying mania that's been going on? What's what's happening with that? Yeah, I mean, I think you had, you know, especially with, you know, the GME and all, all that stuff. I mean, you had really interesting call buying and, and you, it works like one time to kind of rip off the algos and the market makers, but it doesn't happen again, right? Then they're going to overprice implied volatility. It's not going to really happen. So everybody does need to pay attention to retail call buying. Um, but then the question is like, how much is it affecting the market? You know, does it just raise implied volatility, both across calls and puts? 
um, you know, it's, it's, it's part of market dynamics now in an interesting way that, you know, a lot of us go back to the, you know, late nineties E-Trade and that favorite dot-com boom. And, you know, we were trying to figure out how to YOLO calls back then, but we didn't have, you know, an advent of the internet and we couldn't get together in groups and do it. So it is a, it is a market dynamic that's very interesting, but then what it's creating is, is more dispersion trades are back on, you know, where you can short the index and go long single names. So if people are picking right, they can get some nice dispersion trades on. We had some nice dispersion trades going in this past earnings. It was really interesting on that long dispersion trade. So those are the kind of ways it's affecting the markets. But, you know, I'm curious, uh, did you guys start first or did the all in podcast start first? I don't care. What's all in? <laughs> How's that? What's all in? Uh, I was just thinking about, you know, Toby was talking about the, the value That's versus growth rotation. Jeff, yeah, I'm David thinking, Sachs, you know, uh, yeah, you guys are value their growth. When are you guys going to close that delta? <laughs> uh, for listenership or just like general episodes? <laughs> I think their listenership's like over a million an episode. So it's oh, yeah, right. Not an, uh, all yeah. in, all in. That's the uh, Chamath and, and those yeah. guys. Yeah, yeah. it's right. going to take us a while. Yeah, they've, they've got, it's always going to be, they're always going to have the heat. Like they're talking about the popular stuff that all the retail guys are like, we're like, you know, we're not, we're never going to do that. We're always going to be. The, it's going to take uh, us a while or like two more clovers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. We're the oh. redheaded stepchild. It won't matter. He'll do five more clovers and get all those fees. And I'll be here demonetized on YouTube. How many times can you ship it though, do you think, to before folks are just like, eh, no more? Like at a some lot. point everybody starts playing busted SPACs, right? And then it's hard to if you can't if you can get a SPAC in the market for at a discount to cash, it's gonna be hard to float one at a at a premium. Yeah. I don't know, man. I uh I've seen a lot a lot of stuff go on in my life and I, I don't call ends to it anymore. But rates back at five percent and that whole thing is a non-issue again. Well, so is the economy. <laughs> so, <laughs> at this point, worth it to get the portfolio moving, whatever it takes. Yeah. What do you guys think about? You know, historically, if you look back, there's a lot, a lot of uh, correlate, like stocks and bonds become correlated again if we do see inflation and rates pick back up. Um, but you know, we have so few instances of that. I'm curious if any of you guys looked at it. Yeah, I don't know so much about the correlation. I, 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 there was a there's a Jake pointed me to an article by Osam that looked at inflation um, uh, against factors like quality and value, and I, I read them. through it. And, uh, I uh, probably need Jake to explain what happened in it. <laughs> oh, you would do that, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think the basic takeaway was that, and this is looked at, uh, I think 1926 to 2021 and looked at different kind of regimes of inflation um, and that value tended to do pretty good uh, in an inflationary environment. Uh, and a, lo a lot of that is like when they, when you bin up inflation into like 10 buckets of different time periods and then study how equities did, obviously like you sort of get um, a couple different little episodes that would fall into the like, you know, nine and 10th percentiles or decile of most inflation. So that tended to be like the seventies and like, you know, value did pretty good then. 
whether that is repeatable and like, you know, kind of the dispersion, like the stuff you could buy in the seventies, like Buffett talking about in 73, 74 being uh, his colorful language that he used back then about finding lots of good deals. Um, you know, like it was a little is that bit like more an oversex sh- guy in a whorehouse. Is that, is that where that yeah. p- pitch comes from? <laughs> I was trying to keep it classy. That was that, that's Buffett saying it. He's the, he's the grandpa of this market. I'm yeah. just quoting him. Fair enough. Um, so if, you know, I mean the, the, the fish in the barrel kind of maybe that you were shooting at that point relative to other time periods. I don't know if you can always make totally like the, I think the game's a little bit harder than just purely like, Oh, well this, this happened in the seventies. Therefore you're going to get the exact same outcomes. Um, so, but anyway, like it's, it isn't, I think historically you could sort of say that um, you probably want to be leaned more value than maybe than growth in, in an inflationary environment. The joint at the hip. Same thing. It's a continuum. It's just before everybody else lets us know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you want academic value, academic growth, whatever. You know. Let's. What do you think the have like a serious conversation with these glasses on. <laughs> the thing I don't understand about that is like, uh, and maybe I'm just wrong on this, but if value is like harder asset based businesses, it would seem to me that inflation would hurt it, hurt them more, unless they were priced such that they were forecasting the inflation too much and therefore they ripped that I, then I would understand the second order. That's the problem. That's the problem with interest rates, like looking at the impact of interest rates, because you have that, you have the impact on the underlying business, which is um, negative if you're, if you've got a whole lot of debt, but then you have the impact on the multiple, which, you know, also that should be negative. I don't know why that necessarily benefits value over growth, but it does seem empirically some you, evidence for it. You look well, at something like Datadog or whatever, it's going to outgrow whatever inflation is. Like these hypergrowth names, uh, yeah, the multiple will compress, but the growth should, unless inflation sort of runs for multiple years. And I don't know, then somebody in the chat's probably like, Bill's dumb, like, no way, they're going to cut back IT budgets. I don't know, man, I'm not that smart. Well, it, doesn't, it, it depends on your ability to price, right? I mean, if you, you know, how much margin can you maintain and, and what kind of pricing power you have? I just think the thing that's so hard is I was listening to a space yesterday and this dude was talking about selling cars and he's been in the car business forever and like he just can't get cars and he's a dealer. And, you know, I mean, I just, a lot, he specifically, but I hear it a lot, was like talking in hyperbole. He's like, used car prices aren't going to stay high forever. And it's like, well, yeah, I, I don't think anybody is saying forever, but you know, like five, six years, this could take a long time to work through. I don't know. Ian, when you're selecting like micro caps, do you think about like global macro issues with like inflation, deflation, et cetera, or you just try to have a broad panoply of micro caps and hopefully it works out. Okay. Yeah. You summed it up raw. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that. <laughs> yes, that. That's right. No, I mean, I, I do think about a little bit, especially as we get into, you know, where, where currency actually becomes. You think about a little bit more, like we're we're getting more and more active into Australia, so you're buying these Australian, you know, listed companies, and obviously an Australian currency. So, you know, what, what I really try to do is kind of what you just described, where you're trying to negate out some of that risk just by finding high quality, high growth situations that can hopefully outgrow and you know, get a higher valuation just through all of that. But it is something that I've been actually had this conversation with Michael analyst that works with me just a, a couple of weeks ago. I just want to, I just want to shut this quote out uh, from David Kirkby. Another one of Buffett's gems when the brothel burns down, even the pretty girls have to run out. I haven't heard that one before. 
How has Buffett not been canceled? Yeah. He says it with a smile and he's an older gentleman. I have a question for you guys. You guys are smarter than me when it comes to um, a lot of things, most things. You know, one of the things that we see in microcap quite a bit are a lot of these momentum kind of microcaps where a, a hot headline will just rip the stock. You know, you, you'll have this 50 million market cap company, you know, at $5 that has 10 million shares outstanding that historically has traded, you know, 10,000 shares a day, put out a headline that for whatever reason grips Robinhood or grips somebody. And all of a sudden it trades a hundred million shares, you know, it doubles the stock. And it, I'm just like, where is this? Okay. I can understand maybe where some of the buy volumes coming from, but I'm actually Where's more interested. Where's volume come from? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I'm more interested in that because, you know, I'm like, okay, this is something that it traded 20x the amount of float in the stock and it's only up 100%. You know, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, is it retraded through the day? Is it day trade? Is just retra- just like buying and selling through the day? I have no idea. Because that would be, yeah, maybe. That would be my guess that just for whatever reason, it, the party just moves to that stock for the day and everybody trades it. And then as the sort of interest wanes, I mean, it, it probably stags on everybody trading it, and then, and then there's probably the guy who wrote the who wrote the the uh, the press release just shipping a whole lot of volume into that market. Yeah, I mean, we actually seen a few of these, especially earlier on. There was a few of these that, um, you know, they set it up. I don't know if they set it up, but you know, they have an ATM in place where they can lean into the market and fund the company, you know, with it at the exact same time. You know, so I've seen a lot of really bad companies just take advantage of momentum liquidity come into their, into their, you know, into their stock and they're able to, you know, raise 30, 50, a hundred million dollars because they had a, you know, an ATM in place that allowed them to sell into that volume, you know, on the rise. And it's crazy how many crappy companies have gotten bailed out over the last 18 months because Something, of that. Something's become a trillion dollar company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're talking about like Great. AMC hiring uh, Nicole Kidman to do their commercials now because they're just awash with cash. <laughs> exactly. Is that it's what a happened? Larger scale. Good for them. She Smart capital allocation. Days. You get her in She was in my first Playboy ever. Shout out to Nicole Kidman. <laughs> True story. Oh, man, that's what a mess. Long time ago. Right? This Wasn't the, she in our 100th episode and our last episode? It's been great. <laughs> yeah, we had a good run. <laughs> it was very classy. I'm almost certain my mom got it for me. That's weird. But anyway, <laughs> it was very tasteful. Yeah, it was. I think she was on the beach. It was awesome. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> I'm just thinking about Brewster's inner monologue now that, you know, when he's in drawdown, like, does it, bro, does it it's pick a up sick it mind decline? I live in. It's a <laughs> exactly. Sick mind. exactly. You guys hear it with a filter on it. You should see yeah. what it is inside. It's a, it's a burnt down whorehouse. It's terrifying. <laughs> the amount of stuff that I say, don't say to myself is shocking. You can't say, don't say that's how you load it up to say it. Okay, I'll just say forget it. It's just sitting right at the front of your mind, ready to go. Yeah, that's fair. Hey, Jason, it's great. It's it's great having you on. It's it's good having someone who can actually ask questions. You're a really good interviewer. You should. Do you, <laughs> he do should do consider anyway? doing it. You should start a podcast. <laughs> Unlike me, I just sit here in silence and stare. But that was a good question. Uh, you're 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 uh, you're here to answer questions about microcaps, and the, the one the one that I keep on getting is give us the Aussie names. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just jealous of you guys because I think Corey and I 
probably put a pause on our, our podcast, our YouTube show. I don't even know what you call it after like 23, 24 episodes. Cause man, it's brutal every week trying to churn out ideas. At least you guys can bounce ideas off each other live. So I guess that, that keeps it going. Well, you guys yeah, have sick. actual production value. That's, that <laughs> takes a lot of more out of you. Ian, do you watch pirates of finance? I, I have, I've watched a couple of the episodes are really well done. Cracks me up. I had no idea Corey was such a crypto degenerate until I found that. Show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Corey was going to be on. It's just he's he's traveling or something at the moment. He like moved on from uh, quant stuff to just full on trading crypto degeneracy stuff. It's yeah. awesome. I love it. Yeah. Well, he's not here. We could talk about him. Yeah. He's just like he's uh, living on a, a crypto island like Moondog, just just living the dream and. And be, telling be me about floor guy. prices on all kinds of things. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I don't even know what you're talking about. Corey's got yeah, the ARBs. I do he, actually know. Corey yeah. identified all his ARBs. He was the one telling telling me about how much money you could make ARBing them a long time ago. I don't know. Does he, does he do that, Jason? Do you know? Um, not as much because that, that trade comes and goes. And, and shout out actually to two quants, Moritz and Moritz, is that's actually, I think, where he got the trade from as well. They've been writing about it for a while. But you're waiting for that that yield to kind of expand. So you're playing you're playing the expansion and contraction of the R between like the futures and and the actual um, prices at different exchanges, or you can play the perps and play that difference. But you're actually you're trying What's to a kind perp? of it, uh, perpetual swaps. So it's like a, you can have an inverse swap um, that's perpetually updated, even you know on a four hour to anywhere to forty eight hour basis. So it's a way of trading like perpetual futures um, on that you can have on different exchanges. Ian, can I write this up for Microcap Club? Can I can I write up like (laughs) Microcap crypto stuff? (laughs) The thing with and unfortunately for us, it's like you know we wanted obviously we're you know tradfi guys, and I think Eve. Speaking of which, we all just learned that word three weeks ago, so I'll just throw it out there. (laughs) Is that you know with crypto, it's like tradfi is like boomerfi. Exactly. You have to like, you have to, in crypto, you learn a new language like every week, it feels like. And so we were trying to put out a lot of episodes, you know, primarily on TradFi, but then it, would, it was so boring in the markets throughout this year, kind of a lot of, a lot of quiet and a lot of lulls. So then we end up, the most exciting thing for us was crypto and then, but we didn't want to turn into crypto guys either. So hence the pause. How would you, I mean, you how would you characterize yourself, Jason? You're, I think if you as Vol, but you're more, you're broader than that, aren't you? You're like, Global macro eventually. Yeah, I was trying to. Cockroach. I was, I was yeah, it's cockroach. I I, try, I was trying not to be a Brewster. <laughs> no, I was going to be I, like. I, that's not a. That's not, I didn't say that in a disparaging way. Okay, no, no, explain, so, Jason. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sorry. So we um, we yeah, a lot of people think of it as a long vol guys, but that was the first fund we launched was long volatility music an ensemble approach. But the idea was retail didn't have access to protect their portfolio. So that's why we built that first. But it was in the guise of we were always going to build a total portfolio solution. So in September. We just launched our cockroach portfolio. Um, and the idea is it's very visceral, but the idea of a cockroach, right, is we want to maintain our wealth for multiple generations. And so the idea is we, we pair global stocks, global bonds, long volatility, commodity trend managers, and a little bit of gold and cryptocurrencies for that fiat hedge. And so the idea is rebalancing over those over time allows you actually to get on the value of each of them as you're scale trading the equity curve of all the world's asset classes. And the idea is we created the least shitty portfolio. You know, I'm not trying to be smart or outdo anybody. I just want to efficiently, you know, uh, compound my wealth over time with as little drawdown as possible. So I reduce that volatility tax. And so that's why we created the cockroach portfolio. So uh, we're pretty profligate and we, we invest in basically all, all of the world's asset classes. 
it's kind of reminds me of like Harry Brown's permanent portfolio a little bit, but just updated with some new tools that are out there. hundred percent. Couldn't say it better. Like I I'm a huge fan of Harry Brown, huge fan of the permanent portfolio. And I, I like to think if he was alive today, he might do it similar than we like to what we did. So we, the only difference is we use an ensemble approach with active managers, but we also, instead of cash, we use long volatility. And instead of gold, we use commodity trend advisors. Uh, we just feel that that's a better solution, but otherwise it's, it's definitely a rip off of Harry Brown's permanent portfolio. And I say that with great pride. Bill, I got a question here. Uh, did you think that Liberty Invest today was too denigrating of investors asking detailed questions? Why is it so bad to understand how many races Fwonk might do in a year, maybe hiding something? I mean, I don't think they're hiding something. I think they're just tired of ans- answering the questions. Why is that? Because COVID's making it so hard to run races or what's what's happening? No, I just, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, I... Uh, I think that they're probably just tired of answering the same questions over and over and over again. And they're, I mean, I think that their opinion is probably if you follow these stocks, you should be able to read documents, but I also understand why people wouldn't like that. And I also understand why there's some questions about recent stock performance versus five-year stuff. Um, I mean, look, I, I, I like the IR team a lot. I like those girls. Uh, I think that, they are uh, an example of what uh, you know women in finance should be doing, and I, I think uh, or could be doing, or whatever. I don't know. I just have an immense amount of respect for them, and I think it's awesome that uh, it's predominantly women. So it's hard for me to say anything negative about their IR team. Are they call do, me they, biased? I'll own it. Are they doing lots of uh, are, the, are they doing all the races this year? Or have they done all the races? I, I don't know. I haven't followed. I, I don't know serious. how many. I mean, they got the Miami race coming up, which is not Miami. I won't know until the documentary comes out. Until the well, they, like three. they they were joking. Like everybody asked them, you know, for guidance on how many races they're having in 2023. I think they get a lot of the same question over and over again. And uh, you know, they use these convertible exchangeables, and that creates a lot of questions. And some of that's on them. And some of I do understand them saying, like, after you know, twenty years of doing this, you guys should have it figured out. Uh, you know, the truth is probably somewhere in between. Uh, I got a question here. Uh, this is kind of for everybody. Uh, Bill's opinion: so much pain under the hood of the index is the is this the end of high growth tech? No. Next. Let's go. Let's go round. Let's Next. go round. Because <laughs> we got we got some growth here. I, I think that. I mean, what are we asking? Are we asking have the valuations peaked for like five years, or are we saying like has high growth tech as the industry like? I mean, it's just going to continue to eat shit. So. Well, how do you, how do you feel, Ian? I mean, I, I don't. I think Bill said something smart there. Um, Obviously, I'm more growth-centered. I think the types of companies I'm in are a little bit, I don't want to say isolated, but you know, I kind of look at them at a right micro level. You know, These are businesses that I think can you know, two or three X over the next you know, few years or five years, whatever it may be. And so you know, I'm willing to give them a lot of volatility in my portfolio, which is going to happen you know, as long as they're performing on the business side. So that being said, I don't really have a macro thought, you know, I, I look at everything through a micro lens, you know, but I think right now you're seeing some good opportunities in some of these names. I mean, when you see that list of companies and maybe the conversation is whether 
whether some of them are investable at any price. But when you're seeing some of these things come down 50, 60, 70%, should at least get your attention to dive into some of them. I saw a good and research tweet, them. tweet from Joe Frankenfeld, which is sort of something that I think that we've discussed a little bit, but interested to get your opinion on it. That he looks at growth. Uh, he looks at, he, he's interested in owning businesses, not that have a very high rate of growth, but have the optionality in them. He wants that. Is, is that how, you, are you approaching it like that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's definitely, you know, part of it. I, you know, I'm primarily looking for a business that has a product or service or a few of them that can kind of grow through any market environment, you know, and I think, you know, for me trying to find sustainable multi-baggers, a lot of people focus a lot on um, the buzz potential of it, the potential of it, where I kind of invert that and I want to find something that can survive through the worst of times, you know, a, a business. And so I think the only way that you can find a company that, you know, can go up 5X and 10X and sustain it is a business that can survive through a COVID environment can survive. And so a lot of my kind of the, five, the 10 things I look for, probably half of them are focused on survival, not necessarily growth. Um, and then maybe the other five are focused on the growth side. So, yeah, I mean, it, I'm finding myself more and more into, um, I was just looking at it yesterday, we're probably 60, 70% focused on kind of medical technology type areas right now. And it's not because I sought out to be healthcare focused. It's just because they have a, a lot of qualitative attributes that, uh, that I just described that are still small and micro, you know, you know, those types of differentiated products that have an IP, a mode around them that can sustain that type of growth rate, you know, that have, you know, 70, 80, 90% margins profitable, um, a validated platform attacking multiple verticals. So it gives you that optionality. Uh, like you said, and a balance sheet that can endure even through a COVID environment like we had 18 months ago. Um, and you just have to accept that volatility, you know, in the short term to get the long-term reward as long as that business is performing. You know, I, I find that the only time people use the term, except for Jason, volatility is when we're talking about going to downside, not upside. <laughs> you know? yeah. Everybody loves it. upside volatility, right? Yeah, that's exactly. The, that's yeah. their genius. That's their smarts. It's not. It's not upside volatility. I saw a yeah. tweet yesterday where a guy yeah, said, uh, "I'm not looking for hundred baggers anymore. I'm satisfied with ten baggers." And I thought, <laughs> me, "Me too, brother. Me too." <laughs> just going to be restrained, a little bit more conservative. Just go for the ten baggers. Ian, you did think? you ever follow Regeneron when it was smaller? I've, I wasn't following it back then, but I've, I've looked at it just as kind of a case study. Yeah, it's a it's cool a company. It is. And it's, it's also kind of an example of something that I think that stock went next to nowhere for, was it 15 years? You know, it really yeah. didn't, then all of a sudden it just went. And that's, that's what you see a lot, obviously, in, in medical technology too, where everything just takes five years longer and 50 million more dollars, you know, and then, Usually by that point in time, the current shareholder base is left and nobody's around to see it transition to a growth play because it, yeah, everybody's they get forgotten tired. about it. They get tired about it. And so it, that's what we find in, in even Australian markets too and other places. We love to find ideas where the domestic investor base has left it because they remember remember it for what it was and not what it could be. They're not, they're not kind of, they don't have open-mindedness enough to see that transition that's happening. So you have a three, six month window where you see kind of inflecting financials, proving out the thesis where no one's really there to care. Do you guys follow the uh, follow Casper at all? Any lessons from the implosions in consumer DTC companies like Casper? Anybody not got anything sensible to say about that? I don't know. I don't know. I or, think or un- nonsensical. That's yeah. Non, non what? Sorry. That's yeah, just, just making a joke. 
I don't know enough to talk about like the unit economics and stuff. Selling mattresses and boxes has always seemed to be a tough business to me. A lot of competition. Yeah, purple's in there now, and like I, I don't know. I mean, I I have no idea. I read the question is like, what is their competitive advantage, you know, versus everybody else in the space? So is it really, is it a problem with DTC or is it a problem with Casper not being able to outcompete like the purples and Sattvas and everybody else in that world? I like going and laying down in a store. <laughs> get to bounce around on them. It's fun. Uh JT, what do, what do, what do you think? Uh, where are we in the uh, the turn? Have we seen the, have we seen the turn? Are we is, it's, come on, get, confirm some prize for me, brother. Yeah, uh, I I'm gonna like a politician not answer that question and answer the other question uh, that I wanted, which would be if I were a betting man, I would say that probably a lot of the businesses continue to execute. Like to go back to the question before about. Uh, has the worm turned for all these growthier SaaS, you know, maybe not just SaaS, but they've kind of been emblematic of what's been happening. Um, they probably execute and are bigger and some great businesses emerge from it. And maybe they do totally like work out from a business sense, but you may not go anywhere for 10 years on a stock price. Uh, and you have to grow into your valuation. Uh, and that, that would be that would fit with a lot of other time periods where people maybe got a little overexcited about what a business could do, which from that high point, your IRR ended up being not very attractive. So I would say that's probably the base rate would dictate that that's likely your expected outcome for a lot of these names. I like it. JB, where do you fall? Uh, thankfully, I'm going to be boring too because I don't have a crystal ball. And so I don't know. The no, way this is I, a podcast, sir. That's never held anybody right. back. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I should, yeah, pontific. I should lean back and start pontificating. But I, I, my mind actually goes to my just preternatural agnosticism. And I would be combining value and growth and just rebalancing and scale trading in those positions, almost like Ian was saying. So, like, I think on Bill's podcast, I talked about I would love to start a shit ETF where we buy overpriced shit and underpriced shit and you just rebalance between them and you're just riding the wave of both markets. Isn't that suck? Is there one? You know suck? The, the inverse mm. arc. You know, someone's uh, just shorted, shorted arc and the, the tick is <laughs> S-A-R-K. They've called it suck. I think it's because it's short arc, but I, I always read it as sarcasm. Like funny stuff. And they're really, they're doing very well at the moment. They launched, they launched about, That's great. about a month ago. Oh, Not that I wish bad tidings on anybody but it's, it is kind of funny have you seen the girl that writes the the inverse of professor galloway's portfolio and is constantly no. tracking it it's like outperforming like crazy what's the twi- what's the twitter handle I'll, I'll have to find it and get, i get it to you. i, I you know, off the top of my head I, I apologize to her i can't remember it, but it's great like yeah she's just running a portfolio that's the inverse of professor galloway to be fair that dude made a lot of money making one bet the right at the right time right i mean that that bet he made on the four uh, you only have to get rich once. So you got to hold on to it after that. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's very easy to give it back. Yeah. Uh, Bill, I think we, we both know through generations, uh, you, you need to get rich more than once. You tend to give it all. Yeah. Back, well, that's like fair. Saying. That's fair. Amigos. We'd have been that, all right if we avoided booze, but we didn't. So we're not. That's uh that's full time. That's the, the hooter. Oh no, it's not. Toby. we're doing. Uh, we're going to go into extra innings for today, and I've got a. I've got a veggie segment. Oh, prepared. good. We got veggies. Not it. It, Are you it, serious, dude? I gotta go to the bathroom. Serious. <laughs> we'll go to the bathroom and come back. You're not. All right, I'll be right back. Sheesh.
<laughs> Couldn't go before we started, huh? Uh, maybe, perhaps, I've been saving this one because it might be my most ambitious, which might turn into the biggest flop as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a, a we're going to sh- do a little shout out to friend of the show, Dan Sheehan, who recommended this book to me and, and helped me understand it. Um, so there's this book called A Thousand Brains that just came out like this summer. Uh, it's by Jeff Hawkins. And I was kind of surprised to see that uh, Bill Gates yesterday put out in his like five reads for the holidays or whatever. This is one of the books. Uh, and so just a little background on Jeff Hawkins. He, he studied electrical engineering in college, and then he worked at Intel for a little while. And, but he was so fascinated by the brain that he rolled, he dropped or he quit Intel and went and enrolled in the neuroscience PhD program at UC Berkeley in 1986. And he wanted to develop this overall theory of the brain, like how it functions, but it was considered too risky by everybody at the school because you could work on this for five years and, you know, kind of get to the end point and there you wouldn't understand anything more than you did. And so you're not going to graduate and know you know, no advising professor is going to take you on because they're kind of risking tenure by letting you mess around with this for five years. Uh, and you can't get any funding for this kind of thing. It's like too ambitious. So it's like being a value investor. Yeah, exactly. So he spends, spends the next two years in the library reading hundreds of neuroscience papers. He eventually drops out of school and he goes back to industry. And in 1992, he founded Palm Computing, which made the Palm Pilot and, and Trio. And made a bunch of money from that, but his heart was always on figuring out the brain. So he, he left Palm to go start the, this Redwood Neuroscience Institute in 2002. It's like a privately funded uh, neuroscience like research. And eventually he moved uh, that into UC Berkeley, who all of a sudden now they do want uh, a theory of people working on theory of the brain. Uh, and he started a private research company. And, it, and for the last 15 years, he's been working on trying to solve the brain. And this book is basically like the write-up of all the research that he's learned in the last 15 years. So um, we're going to go into a little bit of neuroscience and, and the brain in general, and, and maybe draw that actually eventually get back to like Charlie Munger and the lattice work of mental models, if I can. So a little background, like when you look at the structure of the brain, the old brain, it really grew by addition. Like the early nervous system, you know, were just these sets of neurons that ran down the backs of tiny worms and they allowed movement. And really they were kind of the early predecessors to our spinal cords. And the old brain is responsible for movement and breathing and eating and sex and, you know, your reflex reactions. Uh, And it, you know, it contains dozens of organs that all have separate functions and they look distinct in their shape and their size. And they're, they're all clearly linked to our basic survival, but you know, we're, and we should preface all this by saying that like, we're still really in the early stages of understanding the brain. Like we're, we're like, we, we just understand a little bit how a worm's brain works and they have like 300 neurons and we have like 86 billion. So um, if you stop to think though, isn't it wild that this three pound lump of cells in all of our heads is the only thing in the known universe that even knows that there is a universe. Like how insane is that? I find that to be just wild. Uh, So let's talk then about the neocortex, which it's very different than the old brain. And it actually evolved much faster. Um, It looks homogenous, the neocortex. It's like this, this cover that kind of sits on top of the old brain. And 
you know, if it wasn't all folded up to fit inside of the skull, if you kind of like ironed out the neocortex, it'd be about the size of a dinner napkin and all mammals and only mammals have neocortexes. So it's about 70% of your brain. The volume is the neocortex and it, it does have regions within it that perform different functions. So like, you know, vision is kind of in the back of your neocortex uh, and it's wildly complex, the neocortex. So under one square millimeter of neocortex, so just like a tiny little bit, like which is equates to about two and a half cubic millimeters, sorry, one, one, squ one square millimeter of neocortex and two and a half cubic millimeters. There's roughly 100,000 neurons in that, 500 million connections, which are called synapses. And, and there's several kilometers of wiring that are called axons and dendrites. So imagine trying to stuff miles of wiring into basically the size of a grain of rice. And that's what's happening inside your neocortex. So what's crazy is that the, neo, the old brain and the neocortex are, they're like roommates. They have to work together to get things done. And the neocortex doesn't have direct control over anything. So it, you can't make your muscles move using your neocortex. Your consciousness basically in your neocortex sends a signal to your own brain to move your arm or to do something, right? Uh, and so Jonathan Haidt, who's a, a psychology uh, professor, researcher, he has this analogy that he calls like the elephant and the rider. So like your old brain is kind of the elephant and your, the rider is your neocortex, like kind of your newer brain. So, you know, you can imagine holding your breath and that's your neocortex, like saying like, okay, I'm going to hold my breath. But eventually like the old brain kick takes over and goes like, uh, no, I'm taking back over for survival. Like I need to breathe right now. If you're, you're out of the game, neocortex. Uh, and obviously like that's, a whole, that happens in a whole bunch of different ways, like your neocortex giving you impulses for survival and maybe crowding out your, you know, picture Bill with his uh, Nicole Kidman playboy. Uh, <laughs> so, so one thing that's always puzzled researchers is that there are different regions of the brain, you know, are associated with sight and hearing and touch and language. And yet the neocortex looks the same. It's homogenous. Right. Like it's if you ironed it out, it all looks the same. It doesn't have unique structures like the old brain does. And it's like Mother Nature, like copied this same basic circuitry over and over again inside the neocortex, which is actually it's much more efficient from an evolutionary standpoint. If you imagine kind of Peter Thiel's zero to one versus going one to N, like the, the old brain was kind of zero to one. But the neocortex is sort of one to N, like stamping out this same circuitry. So Jeff. Hawkins has this interesting theory that sort of explains why that might be. And what he says is that the neocortex is roughly 150,000 of these stacked, what he calls cortical columns. And these columns receive input from our, our external senses. And so like, for instance, like in a mice, there's one cortical column for each whisker that like as an input into the mouse, into the mice, mouse neocortex. We can't see these columns within our own neocortexes, but under any microscope, but the columns will respond to certain parts of your retina or a patch of skin, and it will see it light up when that gets triggered, right? So the basic function of the cortical columns is really to make constant predictions about the world as we move through it using models. And uh, so Jeff says in the book, uh, with each movement, the neocortex predicts what the next sensation will be. And if any input doesn't match with the brain's prediction, 
this alerts the neocortex that its model of that part of the world needs to be updated. So the name of this book at a thousand brains is like Hawkins conclusion that, that these cortical columns actually operate sort of in parallel on their own and make separate predictions about what kind of the next sensory input will be for that cortical column. So kind of, in other words, each column functions as its own separate learning machine. It's almost like you have a 150,000 brains inside of your, your neocortex making models of the world and working kind of semi-autonomously. And so the, I mean, the implication of that is that your perception, like what it is to sort of feel like being a human is the result of like a democratic process of these brains voting as to what reality really is. Like it's stitching together reality from a hundred and fifty thousand columns. Uh, so this is like kind of why priming works like psychologically is because it's it's preloading some prediction into your brain. And so like I think like all magic is sort of based on this. Like you know the the magician or the the magician will give like some kind of a like get you looking at a certain and expecting a certain thing, and then when it doesn't happen, it's like whoa, what that's a surprise for your for your brain. Um, and like, if you kind of take this a little further, like it's possible that persuasion might just be sort of the selective turning on and off of cortical columns inside other people's brains. Um, and I, I kind of couldn't help but wonder if like, maybe this is why Montessori education works particularly well is because it gets the young kids using all of their bodily senses as opposed to just sitting in a desk and staring at a whiteboard and listening to the teacher, right? Which is sort of only like, a single modality. Um, so if, if we just kind of summarize all this, the old reptilian brain is running basically like survival software. Our new mammalian brain sits on top of that and is creating mental models and linking past stimuli with outcomes and then making predictions about the future. And then it sends the instructions, like once it, they've all voted as to what reality is, it sends instructions to the rept reptilian brain to execute movement or your actions or your thoughts. Um, so what's what maybe one of the implications of this that's really powerful is that, you know, our old brain was all about survival and procreation and really sort of like Richard Dawkins selfish gene. Uh, but our new brain, so that for the first time in billions of years of biology has the power to defy that impulse of those selfish genes. And so we kind of get to decide our future. Does it, do we want it to be driven by these old processes, which were like natural selection and competition and survival of the fittest? Or would we prefer our future to be driven by intelligence and like a desire to understand the world that the neocortex has? And like this is the first time in four billion years of biology that, that, that there's been that fork in the road to decide. Um, and so to maybe try to tie everything back to, to Charlie Munger. You know, like we're learning mental models and we're like, we're arming our cortical columns with hopefully like these helpful understandings of how the world works. So you get better predictions, the better the models that you have that you're loading in and the, uh, the more of them that you have. Uh, so they will then hopefully like vote better as to what reality is. And then therefore, like how closer you are in your perception, actually approximating the reality that you live in. Uh, so like maybe Charlie's had this right all along by this lattice work of mental models voting in as cortical columns. Um, but he's, I don't think he's ever said that before, but I would be curious what his take is. And I know he's listening because he's one of the 10 <laughs> assuredly. So anyway, that's, uh, that's one very, uh, interesting 
idea of how the brain might work. Two quick thoughts. I should be a quant and Nicole Kidman may have never posed for Playboy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) That's interesting, JT. I, I read a book. When I say I read a book, I, I had a look at a book. I, f- I went through all the pages of it and I read all the words, but I, I didn't know. I don't know how much of it I read. There's a book called The Master and His Emissary, which I've spoken about a few times. It's very hard to understand. If somebody else out there could read it and explain it to me, that would be very helpful. But the basic idea is that you've got two hemispheres that are painstakingly separated by this very small, except for this very small bridge right at the base, which is the corpus callosum. Yeah. And it's basically you have one part that is the imagination and uh, the nonverbal, and that's what they're describing as the master. And then the emissary is the part that interacts with the world. Well, so really what's wild book. about that is that if, if through surgery you remove the connections between one side of the brain and the other, you will have like a behavior that looks like people have literally two brains because they're not sharing information. And therefore, like, it's almost like they're voting on one side and voting on another. And like one will know certain things and then one will not know other things. And it's like, it's an insane, like just absolutely insane outcomes uh, that, that then emerge that sort of support the hypothesis that you do have like multiple voting brains. But isn't the, not to jump in here, sorry, uh, is I don't know if I was brought on to be the turd in the punch. You're welcome. Like, You're part of this yeah, show. Yeah. So. As, as, as Jake was referencing, though, like we're constantly learning about the brain, right? And if we think about complexity or what we have is integrative complexity and complexity dynamics, and that's when you have complex system inter- interacting with complex systems means it's really hard for us to know anything. And I, I just think about in general, it's like maybe I fall in the camp on the side more of like the new Mysterians of like, we are never going to understand the brain or consciousness because we're using the wrong tool set, right? We're using subjectivity to try to understand an objective world. And through science, we probabilistically get better at, at hopefully attenuating what direction we're heading. But I just, I, I really wonder at the end of the day, also, it's like, the idea then of Munger's mental models, it, it, my, my brain always jumps like Feynman, like, you know, the problem is you should never fool yourself, but you're the easiest person to fool. And as soon as you start thinking you have a handle on mental models or how the brain works, you start fooling yourself that you have a handle on how to, how to run your life more effectively. And then it, it turns into this form of materialism hierarchy, right? It's like, I'm smarter and better than everybody else because I have a higher EQ and probably you know discipline than they do because I understand mental models and they don't. When at the end of the day, we're all fooling ourselves and we have no idea what we're talking about. You could approach it in a slightly different way though, where you're working backwards and you know, there, these are the certain areas where I always make a mistake. So therefore, when I go into these areas, I should have some guardrails up so I don't make that mistake. That's sort of the way I approach it, that there are lots of things that I just know that I don't do, that you know, I don't do very well. So I just prevent myself from doing them. I agree, Jason. I think uh, the key often is that, um, you know, we are, we're always suspect of adding more to our confidence than we are to our actual competence. Um, and so keeping track of that a little bit, I think is really helpful so that you don't start to get too far over your skis. Uh, and I mean, it is a, it is a natural outcome. I think of, of spending a lot of time on And even like in a, in a kind of more micro sense, maybe for Ian, like the more time maybe that you spend with a company, you may be adding more units of of confidence that you understand it relative to the units of actual competence of understanding it uh and there's i think there's probably some like tipping over point there where 
you don't always quite know when you've gone over uh, and you're, you know, that that thousandth piece, piece of information didn't really add materially to your understanding of the company, but it did make you feel like, shit, I know this cold, like I know it better than anybody. So I, I'm the one who gets to deserve to be the smart one on this, right? Um, so I think it's just a, you still have to keep humility, even if you do understand this and try to stay in your, the spots where you have your strengths. Well, that's the hard part, isn't it? It's like man's at war with himself or women's at war with herself is that, you know, that there's one thing I'm certain of is that I don't understand how the world works and I don't know anything. But the other thing I'm certain of is my ego is trying to tell me that I do every day. I mean, one way is just to, you know, you just limit your position sizing. So no matter how confident you get in a position, you just, you, yeah. you just automatically saying, I don't know it any more than this. Cause you know, you can work that, you can work that problem where you do the, um, the waiting, the Kelly waiting and, uh, you can see, you know, you can see how big you should be. You, you think that you should be sizing some things, but then if you build in everything else, the sizings go way down. And I think, you know, if you build in every, asset in the world into a into a portfolio rather than every you know equity in the us or equity under consideration and sizing goes way down and i think that's one way of sort of controlling yourself when you i'm an expert in this thing but i can only size it up to three percent so therefore there's like i've 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 from the outside explicitly said there's a limit to how much i can know yeah, even with Kelly though, it's a it's a Luddick fallacy, right? Because we it's an open loop system when we're trading and we don't know what the um the spectrum of outcomes are. So even that's like guessing at it because it, it applies to games of chance where they you have known probability. So even yeah, Kelly sizing, we still don't know. So it's like we're you, we I'm just turning this all over to computers. I don't even know why I do this. <laughs> I really don't. I said it the other day. I was like, I'm just gonna factor myself in public markets and go do something else. But also, I wonder, Toby, I, I thought about that, too, when you're talking about like Kelly sizing and everything, too, is like the other thing where Kelly finally um, outperforms in general is you need 500 to 1000 iterations or rebalances. And so I really wonder if you're a discretionary value manager, let's say you don't have enough sample data set, like let's say you have 20 to 30 positions and you're not turning those over a lot. But let's say 20 positions over 50 years, you have 1000 positions, but maybe due to turnover, you maybe have 200 to 500 positions. I, I don't know if that's enough sample or data set to think if you've outperformed or underperformed and if you're just betting on Lady Fortuna shining on you. Well, I've, I've built uh, Monte Carlo. I've got one uh, Excel spreadsheet that I can send you that's got Monte Carlo of exactly that. And it's got one that runs out to a thousand. And the number of times that the thousand underperforms the others is like almost, it feels like it's, you know, you, you can run it repeatedly every five seconds or something like that. And it underperforms, you know, repeatedly doing that. So that's, that's exactly right. I mean, I don't use Kelly. I just, I just rebalance back to equal weight, but then um, I can, I, I just think that people who use Kelly should understand exactly those things that you want to, that you want to size way down to where you think much, much smaller than you think. Well, and implicit in Kelly is that it's, it's the median geometric return. So you have around that a big potential. So when you run 10,000 iterations on a Monte Carlo, that's just the median one that Kelly is giving you. So it can go a lot of different ways on you and, and get, get ugly much faster than I think people appreciate. Um, Martingale and uh, double or nothing. They blow up pretty quickly, by the way, half Kelly, (laughs) half Kelly uh, is, is, is all right, but you never participate on the upside. Right. Half Kelly then will truncate that. But it's not optimal because it's, it's, uh, it's not enough gain for the vol. Or, or something like that. Like that's the that's the argument that I always hear that like Kelly is optimal vol for 
is optimal return for risk. And so half Kelly, like they said, cuts your volatility in half, but it should cut your return further too, because Kelly is literally optimal. But as Jason points out, you can't get there in the real world because it's not, yeah, it's it's not, not a closed mechanical. system. It's not blackjack. And it's played in Gents. parallel, not series. Sorry, I got to jump, but it's been a pleasure. Happy 100. Congratulations. Thanks, Thanks for got- the glasses. Jason. I'm going to wear these out in public today. <laughs> you should. <laughs> you should. I think we'll shut and- it down unless anybody's got... Uh, anything else they want to add? No, I'm just sorry to Nicole Kidman. It was a good memory. It was just a false one, potentially. What a yeah, shame you had to end it. Where are we storing that one? <laughs> In a <laughs> bank. Reptile brain, yeah. Yep. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks, Bill. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Ian. And thanks, Jason. It's been a fun run. Let's hope we can get uh, a few more in. Until the wheels happy come off. Guys. Happy, yeah, Thanksgiving. happy Thanksgiving, guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving.